civilian space science, and surviving black holes. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. An all-civilian space mission is set to take flight in about two weeks. The crew of four will fly in SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule on a three-day trip to low Earth orbit and back. But it's not all fun and games for this private mission. The crew will be performing crucial science experiments that will help get humans to farther places in our solar system, like the Moon and Mars, and survive longer in the harsh environment of space. To talk more about the research goals of SpaceX's Inspiration4 mission, we'll speak with Dr. Emmanuel Yurketa. He's the interim chief scientist and chief medical officer of the Translational Research Institute for Space Health. Then, black holes have captured the attention of the masses, with breakthroughs in imaging, gravitational wave detection, and Nobel Prize recognition. So what's spurring this new dawn of black hole discovery, and how can scientists communicate such complex phenomena to a general audience? We'll revisit a conversation with Jan Levin, professor of physics and astronomy at Barnard College of Columbia University, about her book, Black Hole Survivor Guide. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. Billionaire Jarek Isaacman is bankrolling an all-civilian mission to low-Earth orbit and back. He and a crew of three other citizens will fly in SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule on a three-day mission that will take them on an orbit higher than the Hubble Space Telescope. But they won't have too much time to enjoy the view. That's because the crew is working with the Translational Research Institute for Space Health on four experiments, examining how humans adapt to space travel and testing new technologies that will help astronauts go farther into our solar system and spend more time in the hard environment of space. To talk more about these investigations and the data this crew will collect, we're joined by Dr. Emmanuel Yurketa. He's the Interim Chief Scientist and Chief Medical Officer of the Translational Research Institute for Space Health. Dr. Yurketa, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Brenda, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So very exciting. In just a few short days, uh, the Inspiration4 mission is going to launch, and you've provided them with some some work to do while they're up there. <laughs> Tell me a bit about the experiments uh, that the Inspiration4 astronauts will be yeah, working absolutely. on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is a very, very historic mission. Uh, so far, uh, most of the, of the missions uh, going to space were by, by governments, uh, you know, by NASA, uh, Roscosmos, uh, JAXA, all of these space agencies. And this is the first all-civilian mission. There have been uh, civilian missions in the past, but this is the first all-civilian uh, mission. So we're very excited to be a part of this. Um, and I, this, is, this is a new chapter in the history of human spaceflight. So, so you're correct. We're, we're um, uh, giving them four experiments to perform on this uh, three-day mission around the Earth. So let's take a step back and talk a bit about the Translational Research Institute for Space Health. Um, what are kind of the, the goals or, or the mission of your organization, um, and how are these experiments going to kind of help? Yeah, so uh, Trish, as we call the, the institute, is uh, funded through a cooperative agreement um, with the NASA Human Research Program. So, so we, um, we help NASA, we help the Human Research Program to develop new technologies and new approaches uh, to solve space biomedical problems, uh, both for missions mainly to, to the moon, Artemis missions, and also uh, to Mars. So we are finding new approaches, disruptive technologies, and out-of-the-box thinkers that will help us to solve faster um, the space biomedical research problems. And one of those efforts is commercial spaceflight, these new platforms that um, you know, we're seeing um, emerging in the last um, um, few years. 
Mm-hmm. Can you talk specifics about what the inspiration for crew will be doing? What are, what are they investigating? Um, what's kind of the science experiments that they'll be performing uh, in orbit? Yeah, so there's four technologies that we're deploying for this for this mission. Uh, they're doing uh, research in space, but uh, all of the technologies have direct uh, implications and, and direct deliverables also for, for terrestrial um, medical applications. So one of them is a miniaturized ultrasound. It's a handheld ultrasound, single probe ultrasound that you can connect to your cell phone. And it gives you guidance on how to, to conduct a medical grade um, ultrasound without you being a, a radiologist or medical professional. So this, this is a very, very unique technology that, that they will be testing in space. The second one is uh, a device. It's called a vertical um, flow paper-based device. It is um, a very, very small device that with a single drop of blood can uh, quantify some of the changes in your blood as you go into space. And this is going to be done in real time. So imagine a larger lab that you would have on, on, on Earth, like when you go to the, to the doctor and, you know, they get the, um, like 10, 12 cc's of, of blood. Uh, this could do some of the same uh, capabilities, but with a single drop of blood and in real time in space. So this is a very, very unique technology. Um, the third one is uh, a cognition testing. We want to we want to see how their uh, cognition, how their how their uh, psychology changes uh, as they go into this um, historical mission. And the fourth one is uh, sensory motor adaptation. How their sense to to walk, um, um, you know, on a straight line on Earth, how it changes as you go into space, and how can you adapt when you come back to Earth? And more importantly, what can we do to predict that those changes will happen? And uh, let me just make a, a quick point on this. These are technologies that we funded at different institutions here in the United States. So, uh, you know, there's a large group of, of um, you know, incredible investigators behind these. And we're very lucky to, to be able to have them with us. Mm-hmm. They all seem like understanding these technologies and these concepts are going to be extremely important for deep space exploration, like going to the moon and Mars, having a handheld um ultrasound equipment to diagnose any issues when you're on a 24-month trip to Mars or or being able to to do blood work um you know with a very small quantity and almost in real time i mean is that is that what's propelling this research is the fact that we want to go farther and longer into space and we're going to need to figure out how the human body adapts to to this i mean is that's what driving the research Absolutely, and th- th- like I was saying at the beginning, this is a new a new chapter in the history of human spaceflight. Though, so for for us, at Trace, this is the first flight that we are deploy- the first commercial flight where we're deploying technologies. But on parallel, we're developing a repository for um, data collection. So we're developing um, a capability that will aggregate research data deployed on multiple uh, spaceflight carriers. Um, our institute is engaging not only with uh, you know with SpaceX for this flight. Uh, but also with other carriers, um, both in the U.S. And, and abroad. And we want to develop this program so that each carrier can deposit um, the, the research data that, that we will um, deploy on these flights, but also the medical data from these participants, right? All of them have to go through some level of screening to make sure they're safe, safe to, to fly into, into this very extreme environment. And we're also developing a biobanking capability. We're getting uh, some blood, urine, saliva samples, and we want to analyze them and archive them. But the very interesting thing about this is that, of course, we want to, to, to have them um, under uh, a single 
database and repository, but we don't want to keep them for ourselves. We want to share them with uh, other investigators outside of Trish that want to uh, to understand better these this very unique cohort because you know these are not um, as uh, healthy as your um, government agency astronauts that get highly highly screened and you know they go through years of, of training. So these very unique population will allow us to understand the the extremes of of health. And uh, what we call the unknown unknowns, which uh, you are absolutely right. That's what we need to solve um, to go safely to the moon and Mars. So this is this is a long uh, investment and a long um, effort that that we're just starting now. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, this is an emerging platform for science, commercial space. Um, but I, I've got to think that having a particular crew member on this mission has got to be helpful. Haley Ar- Arsenault is a medical professional. Um, and is the chief medical officer for, for this particular mission, inspiration for it. Does that help when you're developing these experiments to have someone who has a background, a, a medical training to be conducting this? Absolutely, and the, I'm very glad you mentioned this because um, on any spaceflight mission, regardless of the the provider or the, the destination of the mission, there's always a, a, a crew medical officer, right? Sometimes it is a physician, sometimes it's not, sometimes someone that has no previous medical training, but they go through some some training. So we need to ensure that anybody, regardless of, of the level of, of medical training, will, would be able to provide some level of, of medical care. So in this very unique uh, mission, we have one person with, with uh, previous experience and training in, in healthcare. So we'll be able to compare side to side how uh, someone with medical training um, performs doing these experiments uh, versus the other crew members who don't have uh, this level of medical training. So absolutely, this is this is one of the, the the key things on this mission. Oh, that's fascinating. I didn't even think about it that way. Yeah, because you know, most people think yes, we're going to have a physician on on any mission, and you know, all of our problems are going to be solved. But what happens if this physician gets sick, right? So uh, the other the other crew members need need to have uh, the same or close to the same level of of medical training and capability, so they can they can train the physician if he or she happens to get sick during the mission. Mm-hmm. And finally, Dr. Arqueta, um this mission, it seemed to come together quite quickly um, with, with when it was announced. And, you know, I, I'm wondering if there was a sense of urgency um, to get these experiments ready to go because of the quick turnaround time. Well, usually when you want to send a payload to space, it takes a long, long time to get it, uh, you know, flight certified, tested. Then so there's a lot of... Um, government requirements behind the, the, the science, you know, you don't make sure that you, you need to make sure it's ethical, there's this institutional review board and all of the approvals that you need to make sure that you check all the boxes. So usually this is something that takes takes a long time, but, you know, we, we had this historical opportunity and, and all of our team at Trish and, and our investigators at the different institutions, we have been working on this, um, you know, very, very hard for the last four or five months and, uh, you know, we, we were able to do it uh, within the same level of, of uh, assurance, the same level of safety and the same level of governance that you would do uh, on, a, you know, usually a year of, of developing something like this. So I'm very, very excited to be a part of this team and having all of this investigator with us. So, yes, there was some level of urgency, but uh, we worked uh, tirelessly making sure that this, this happened. And, and uh, we're really excited to see the, the flight uh, in a couple of weeks. 
That was Dr. Emmanuel Yurketa. He's the interim chief scientist and chief medical officer of the Translational Research Institute for Space Health. Last week, we spoke with Axios reporter Miriam Kramer about the Inspiration4 mission. If you missed it, be sure to check out last week's show in your podcast app or visit wmfe.org slash are we there yet. Still to come, the curious science of black holes. Are we there yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. I'm Brendan Byrne. Black holes have captured the attention of the masses, with researchers making breakthroughs in imaging, gravitational wave detection, and winning Nobel Prize recognition. So what's spurring this new dawn of black hole discovery, and how can scientists communicate such a complex phenomena to a general audience? Well, let's revisit a conversation from November with Jana Levin. She's a professor of physics and astronomy at Barnard College of Columbia University, and her book is Black Hole Survival Guide. Jana, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Well, Jana, you know, the one thing um, I can never really wrap my head around is what a black hole is. And and in the book, you paint a picture of this phenomenon so eloquently. I'm, I'm wondering if you might be able to give our listeners a taste by explaining just what these things are. Yeah, I really enjoyed kind of dispelling a lot of misimpressions about black holes in this book. Uh, People often think of a black hole as a dense object, as though you go up to the black hole and you will knock on some intense surface. Actually, black holes are more of a place than a thing. They're actually empty. They're they're, uh, nothing, as I describe in the book, which is one of the first chapters to create the sense for people about how kind of austere they are as, um, as an astrophysical phenomenon. So a lot of people hear the story that a star collapses and makes a black hole. That's just one avenue to making a black hole. It is not the definition of the black hole. So it is true that it's a death state of a star. You start with a very massive star, that star collapses. What happens is eventually it gets so dense, the star, not the black hole, but that it creates around it a curved space-time, as Einstein imagined, that was so strong that not even light could escape falling in. But what happens then, we call that the event horizon, and what happens then is the star is forced to continue to collapse. So the star is gone. It falls towards the interior of the black hole, creating this incredible extreme curvature in the center, which we can talk about, but the event horizon, which is really what we mean when we talk about a black hole, is a place. There's nothing there. So if you were to fall across the event horizon, your experience would be to some extent unspectacular. You would just be falling into the shadow cast by this extreme curvature of the space-time. It would be no more dramatic in some sense than stepping into the shadow of a tree. And so the event horizon is really what we're talking about when we're talking about taking pictures of black holes, when we talk about how big they are, that's the shadow cast by the event horizon. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit more about the event horizon, because I know that there have been some some pretty interesting breakthroughs recently about, you know, actually seeing what one of these things looks like. I mean, kind of dive in a little bit more about what the event horizon is and, and what we know more about now because of, you know, some of the scientific breakthroughs that have happened. It really is tremendous that when you tell people that prior to a year ago, um, 2019, the, the world had never seen an image of a black hole. 
And that surprises people because we discuss observations of black holes, but we're almost always talking about indirect observations. So really the mayhem that black holes create around them when there's debris or stars or other things that veer too close. And that's what we see. That's what we detect with telescopes. Uh, but we have never taken a picture of a black hole. And this incredibly exciting announcement was made in April of 2019 uh, from the Event Horizon Telescope Project, where they revealed the first ever image of a black hole. And in that image, what you are seeing really is a bright ring of hot matter encircling the shadow, the event horizon. And so what you're really seeing is the shadow cast because this bright ring um, illuminates what you would not be able to see otherwise, which is essentially the event horizon. The event horizon telescope doesn't exactly get all the way to the event horizon, but it gets incredibly close. It's as close as uh, we've ever been able to detect anything near a black hole. And so when that image was revealed, and if people saw interstellar, <laughs> um, it was a pretty good prediction of what, of what the image would look like. It was really uh, this stunning moment where it, even though we knew we had great predictions for what it would look like, it was still quite remarkable to, for a billion people on one day to lay eyes for the first time in human history on a black hole event horizon. I mean, and is, is it just going to get better or, you know, more clear or get closer? I mean, it, it, theoretically, can we see better pictures of it? Well, so here's, here's some of the interesting things that will happen next. The Event Horizon Telescope is a very long project. It took decades um, collecting data for a couple of years, but it took decades to, to organize, to rally. So what the Event Horizon Telescope is, is it is a collection of observatories around the globe that work in concert, even though the Earth is rotating and things are happening at different times, to make the, the, this global Earth-sized observatory work as though it was simultaneously taking a snapshot of the sky. And, um, and so you need something as big as the size of the Earth because the black hole is actually small. And when you think about resolving small things, we want bigger and bigger telescopes to resolve small things. So we needed a telescope the size of the Earth. Now, the argument that black holes are small is also something people don't understand. They always hear this verbiage about there are these monsters and, uh, you know, weapons of destruction. But actually, the whole point of the black hole is that it's heavy but small. So if you were to take a black hole the size of the sun, the mass of the sun, it would only be six kilometers across. I mean, that's stunningly small. That's smaller than a city. And, um, and if you think about trying to resolve something that small, it's actually very difficult. So what you need is an incredibly supermassive black hole. We have one in the center of our galaxy, which we call Sag A star because we see it in the direction of the constellation Sagittarius. It is four million times the mass of the sun, but it's only, it's less than 20 times the width of the sun across. So think about how exceptionally tiny that is in space, given how much mass, 4 million times mass of the sun, uh, is affiliated with that black hole. So to see something that's only 20 times the width of the sun on the sky across and pushing it 26,000 light years away, you are trying equivalently to resolve something like a piece of fruit on the moon. That's how small it is. And yeah. so um, it was an extraordinary achievement. But the big surprise at the reveal was that we didn't get a picture of Sagittarius A-star. We did not get a picture of our own black hole. There was only one other candidate, and that is an absolutely gigantic black hole in the center of M87, 
which is a galaxy about 55 million light years away, so much further. But the black hole is so much heavier. It's six billion times the mass of the sun in that vicinity that it subtends about the same size on the sky. And, and so the big surprise was the first picture we ever took was in a different galaxy, M87. So what's next is, of course, to try to capture Sagittarius A-star. Mm-hmm. And that would be very exciting. The book is framed around a theoretical encounter with a black hole. And, and I don't want to give too much away about what's in it. But, I mean, you told us that if, if we would be on that event horizon, it would be pretty unremarkable to us. But I've got to assume if the two of us found ourselves pretty close to one of these things, um, some bad things would happen, right? What, what, what would happen if what would happen if, if we found ourselves uh, in the vicinity of one of these black holes? Well, lots of bad things can happen around black holes. Um, if there is debris and magnetic fields, the black holes actually create these magnetic storms. They basically drive these astronomical ray guns. So you can be blasted by these jets that are uh, created or outside of the black hole. We see jets that are sometimes millions of light years across. We see jets that are so powerful that they blast holes in other galaxies, presuming, you know, presumably uh, annihilating any emergence of life on any planets there. So, so they are quite lethal in their way. Um, so if you're around a black hole, you don't want to get in the direction of the ray gun. You will be, you will be uh, sprayed with x-rays and gamma rays, which obviously would deteriorate, would be like uh, being exposed to intense radiation. Um, and if you cross the event horizon, your doom is sealed. That is for sure. <laughs> so you don't want to cross the event horizon, even though that moment itself might not be dramatic. Um, what comes next is, is pretty terrible. Pretty terrible. All right. So I will stay very, very far away from them. <laughs> and in, in fact, you know, Sir Roger Penrose was just awarded the Nobel Prize uh, in October. We were all very excited about that for work he did in the 60s, which proved that once you cross the event horizon, there is this inevitability of march forward towards what we call a singularity, which is a region of infinite curvature and um and and as many people have described you will be flayed and torn apart as you approach that region in space-time but more profoundly which uh, i don't think a lot of people realize is that from the outside if you and your astronaut friend chose different paths and one of you stayed outside you would imagine that that point that dreaded uh, point of annihilation to be the center of this black hole but for the person who crosses it's not a point in space at all Actually, their space-time is so deformed relative to yours that they perceive this as a moment in the future, as a point in time. So you can no more avoid the singularity than you can avoid the elapse of time, the inevitability of time approaching you in the future. Um, So that idea really is due to Roger proving, Sir Roger proving that that was the case for all black holes. And that's why your doom is absolutely sealed. There's nothing you can do. Doom sealed. That is good to know. <laughs> good to know. No, no going back. You mentioned uh, uh, two things. We, we, we talked about the, uh, the the 2019 images of, of the event horizon, and then also the the Nobel Prize recognition for for black hole research. But there's also um, work on LIGO and the gravitational waves. Um, that's kind of been propelling this moment of, of black hole discovery. How, how has uh, LIGO and these gravitational wave breakthroughs helped our understanding of, of what black holes are? Uh, it's an extraordinary story, the story of LIGO. Um, my, my previous book, Black Hole Blues, was on that, on that climb. I, I followed the experiment um, for years to describe just the tenacity 
of this kind of Mount Everest climbing story of trying to make it to the summit. Uh, in the 50 years over which LIGO was imagined to build, um, even the original architects like Ray Weiss and Kip Thorne uh, were not sure it would succeed. It was just a tremendous scientific ambition and hoping nature would provide. And actually, a lot of people on the project said, oh, we might never see black holes. Hopefully, we'll detect other things, but not black holes. And that's why it was called Black Hole Blues, because Ray Weiss, who is now a Nobel Prize winner, said to me, if we don't detect black holes, this whole thing's a failure. And he felt it on the eve of the most advanced instrument coming online. Um, and, uh, and it was within a couple of weeks that the first detection was made. So what LIGO does, which is extraordinarily different than anything else, is it does not take pictures of the sky. If you think about astronomy since Galileo, almost everything is taking collecting light with telescopes, light of different varieties, but collecting light with telescopes. LIGO is a recording device. It is like a giant uh, antenna, and it records the ringing of space-time. If you imagine space-time ringing like a drum. Um, and so when two black holes collide, they're like mallets on this drum. They create this ringing in space-time. You could technically, if you were nearby, hear it with your ears in principle. It's literally much closer to sound uh, in that sense. And so that's why we always talk about LIGO as recording things. And... Um, and when it made its first detection, it did detect two black holes orbiting each other, merging into one quiet black hole. They detected the sound of that collision that happened over a billion years ago. And so when, when LIGO plays its discovery, it plays it back to us as, as sound. You can listen to what it sounds like. Jenna, the the way that this book is written and, and the way that we've been having this conversation, it, it really kind of puts these things into perspective. I, I'm wondering just... How important effective science communication is when explaining these things that are pretty much mind-blowing. We talked about space-time and black holes and, and all that. But to be able to explain it in a way um, that you know someone like me can understand. I mean, how important is it as, as a scientist to be an effective communicator when it comes to these, these very elaborate and intense phenomenon? I appreciate the question. Uh, in the science community for a very long time, it was frowned upon to try to reach out uh, with discoveries in this way. It was considered a mere distraction from our, our more important work in the lab. That was kind of the attitude. And, and I've never felt that way. I've always felt that even for my PhD students, it's a long haul to go from your physics classes, your math classes, to the big picture, which is exhilarating. It's that that draws us to the science in the first place. So I advise a lot of them to read the popular level books, even though one day they will be experts, technical experts in this field, that it opens the mind to speak in plain language about uh, these extraordinary ideas. And I even have other physicists who will tell me after reading uh, a book saying, you know, I never thought of it that way. You said it in this way, and I just never thought of it that way. So it's not just this, uh, I'm reaching across to others. I very much write books that I want to read, that I love. And, and I think that that's a very important distinction. I think it removes this attitude of, oh, we're coming down from the mountain with this tablet to tell you. We've been speaking with Jan Levin. She's a professor of physics and astronomy at Barnard College of Columbia University. The new book is called Black Hole Survival Guide. Jana, thank you so much for speaking with us. 
Thank you so much. Great to be on. That conversation aired last November. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. You can get it on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, or visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? This program is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. The show's new intern is Maria Brasina. Maria, welcome. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.